0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 36 this morning. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you, you can certainly use the one. There's several throughout the row in front of you there in those back pockets of the chairs. If you um, do not own a Bible of your own, we invite you to have that from us as a gift. And uh, if you happen to have that pew Bible, turn to page 835. John chapter three, verses twenty two through thirty six. We're continuing our exposition of the Gospel of John this morning. Having looked at Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus and seen John's commentary on what it is, uh, what it means that the Son of God must be lifted up, that those who believe on Him will be given eternal life, and those who do not are condemned. Already, we see now this morning an important transitional time in the ministry of John the baptizer. We haven't seen him for a little while, but he shows up here again and we notice here how he looks to Jesus as the one for whom he, that is John the baptizer, has made the way. If you're able to, would you please stand with me as I read aloud and you follow along in your text of scripture. John chapter 3 verses 22 through 36 For our New Testament reading this morning. I'm reading from the ESV. John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets the seal to this. That God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You may be seated. That is the word of God in the New Testament reading. May it be a blessing to you as you've heard it both in the Old and New Testament reading aloud. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come this morning asking that by your Spirit, who inspired these words in the original autographs, and indwells true believers here this morning, that you would illuminate our eyes, illuminate our hearts to these truths, and may we make application of them even as you instruct us by them. Lord, for those who do not know you and do not yet have the Spirit, may you convict them by your Spirit and by your Word, taking away their heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh as you will. And we will trust you for that and for our time in your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Transitions are difficult. When one era seems to be coming to an end, the people who have been in that era tend to want to cling to, to the memories and traditions of that era, while those who are a part of the change tend to want to push forward so hard and so rapidly that they seem to not care if those that are still pining for the previous one are left behind. This is true in cultural changes, whether good or bad. Uh, Things like music and entertainment, politics and social changes, again, whether good or bad, we're not kind of discerning between those this morning is just a reality of what we face sometimes those views are extreme like every new technology in the 70s and 80s being deemed as the mark of the beast even atms by certain individuals of certain end times view or even momentous occasions like the tearing down of the berlin wall on the fall of the eastern bloc communism which by the way the old way seems to be coming back that didn't last very long Every transition is fraught with some level of difficulty. You think about that idea that when the Berlin Wall fell and Eastern Bloc communism seemed to come crashing down, it was not as glorious as what we would have hoped. Immediately afterward, there was celebration, but within months and the coming years, there was much devastation. I'm not advocating for communism in any way, but the structure of that whole society, having changed so rapidly, brought devastation in many ways though we would applaud the transition to something more democratic. Well, this kind of transition is no different in the Scriptures. We see it throughout the transition from Egypt to the wilderness, to the promised land. What did the people, once they were liberated from Egypt, do? They complained. (laughs) right? We, we, We long for the food of Egypt, forgetting, of course, that they were slave laborers, at some point, having to make bricks without straw. The transition to judges. The downward spiral of Israel in that time period. To the prophets. To the prophets then bringing kings and the desire of the nation to have kings like other nations around them. Only to have an initial king who was no good of a king Then to a good king who only after that the kingdom is then divided. Much of this is marked by sin and the people's own disobedience bringing these things upon themselves. But there is one transition that marks the overarching story of Scripture, and that is from, if you you can imagine this sort of category, from shadow to substance, from shadow to substance. That is what the Old Testament pointed to, a coming Messiah, and then the actual coming of Messiah. From shadow in the Old Testament, that which was a type or anti-type of that which was to come in the substance of Christ in the New Covenant. And the closer that those two came together, the more it is like the churning of a confluence of two rivers. Meant to merge, but the place of merging is tumultuous. This is what we see in the section of Scripture today as those who are followers of John the Baptist and the religious leaders are struggling with Jesus and his new band of followers. And the lesson we learn from this is very, very valuable to us. Here's the main point. You can see this written for you on the back of your worship folder. It's written there. John humbly submits to the lordship of Jesus by pointing others to Christ's supremacy. And as John does this, there is a lesson for us in this. As John humbly submits to the lordship of Jesus by pointing others to Christ's supremacy, thereto in that is a lesson for us. I want us to see this morning three observations of John's humility and Jesus's supremacy Three observations of John's humility and Jesus' supremacy. Observation number one is that there are two baptisms. We see in this text this morning two baptisms. After Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he and his disciples move on to the Judean countryside. One aspect that we ought to observe in this is that Jesus' ministry is not static Jesus does not stay stay in one place and ask people to come to him. He would move from region to region. And as he did that, people would certainly come to him. But he was in different regions. His message is first to the Jews. But we will see as well, he also begins to reach out to the Samaritans. And eventually, even the fringes of Israel's borders and, and Gentiles actually come and say, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And so he moves about in the regions of Israel and begins even just shortly now uh, as we come to chapter 4 in the near future, reaching even those who were hated by the Jews. We also notice that something unique is going on here. They go out to this Judean countryside and... He begins baptizing. But really what we understand is that the disciples were baptizing under his authority. If you look at John chapter 4 and verse 2, actually verses 1 and 2. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. We see this this moving ministry of Jesus, but we get an uh, an understanding here that Jesus himself was not baptizing, but that his disciples were baptizing under his authority. So we have this baptism of Jesus under his authority. We also have this John baptism. John was baptizing as he had been since before Jesus' ministry. Verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. Um, Plentiful water I think, implies immersion, but we're not going to get into that discussion this morning. For my Presbyterian friends, whom I love dearly. What was the nature, though, of these baptisms? Why two baptisms? Well, as we look ahead to verse 25, the issue seems to be, at least for the, in the minds of the Jews that would have observed this, Purification. Purification. The ultimate statement of this text helps us see the reason, though, for these two baptisms. As we kind of look at overall what we just read, John's ministry is coming to an end, and Jesus' ministry is at its beginning. We're not sure of who this Jew is who has come and had this discussion with John's disciples, only that he raises this question about purification. Baptism in some senses, is that. It's a a rite of purification which would have identified a person with a particular group or leader and their message. Well, what do we already know about John's baptism from the beginning of our study in the Gospel of John? John the Baptizer, that is. It was a baptism of repentance and it was a message uh, that stated he was the forerunner of Messiah. Therefore, to be baptized... By John was to say, I'm turning from my former ways and following what John is saying as he carves this path out for the Messiah. One professor of uh, Greg Fulner's uh, put it this way, I thought was very interesting. It, it was as if John the Baptizer had excommunicated all of Israel, and he was saying, If you want back in, be baptized, repent, and look to the Messiah. What was the sort of overarching religion of the Jews in that day? It was a Pharisaical religion. That was the majority uh, trajectory of that religion. It was was not one that stuck closely to the law of God. It was one that created its own law as a means of righteousness. And so it's as if John the baptizer, baptizer is saying, repent, turn from that. Flee that and come now to understand what the true Old Testament law, what the true Old Testament meaning of the coming of Messiah is. I am here, as Malachi said, to carve out his way. The baptism of Jesus by way of his disciples would be, it seems, to identify with his message that he had been preaching. As the other gospels proclaim or or tell to us what he was proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Him tying himself, as he did, declaring, as he did in the synagogue, this day has come that Isaiah has prophesied about. Look now to me as the one who brings this kingdom. We should not be surprised by this kingdom language. It's a language that John has used recently in his gospel concerning the coming of Jesus the inauguration of the kingdom, though we await the fullness of that kingdom. But it begins at the coming of Jesus. This is a transitional time, as I said. The new covenant has not been instituted yet, but will be at the cross. But what has Jesus come to do? Every single gospel is on a trajectory towards the cross. So it is to identify with who Jesus is saying he is and this preaching about the kingdom. The dispute, however, as several commentators agree, seems to be around the issue of both John and Jesus' baptism and the usual rite administered by the Jews. Likely, here's a surprise, the religious leaders are taking issue with both baptisms. Of course, ultimately, John and Jesus' baptism would not have been in conflict. John's baptism is turned from these old ways, this misunderstanding of the application of the Old Testament, to an understanding that here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to now Jesus' baptism, his disciples baptizing under his authority, saying the kingdom is here. John is pointing to Jesus and Jesus is pointing to the kingdom, which is, of course, a result of him and his work. When this dispute arises, John finds this as a good opportunity to remind his followers of what he's been stating all the time and clearly demarcates this as his ministry doing exactly what it was supposed to do. Look at verses 27 and uh, 28 again. So this dispute has arisen in verses 25 and 26. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. This is my commission from heaven, he says. You need to remember what my commission is. I am not the Christ. I have been sent ahead of him. And as I told you previously, the the words would have likely been ringing in their ears. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice the baptizer's message has not changed here. It is, in fact, the message that he has stated from the beginning. I am the forerunner. This is not about me. This is about him. This begins already to help us with an application, with a scripture-wide application. We are image-bearers of God. And if we are in Christ, we are redeemed image-bearers. Our aim is to reflect him. Our aim is to reflect the one whose image we bear. And as those who are in Christ, united to Christ... And being formed into His image. It is all about Him. Our lives, our actions, our desires, our everything. All of our lives are being dedicated to Him. And to point to Him. And it is by this union with Christ in His life, death, and resurrection. By the way, that's what our baptism symbolizes. It is by that that we are able to do this. Our union with Him. That is our goal. That is our aim. If you are in Christ today, that is what you are to be doing. Evaluate yourself. Evaluate your heart. Evaluate your motivations. Am I doing the things I do? Not perfectly. We certainly do not do it perfectly. But is the direction of my life, the pointing of my heart and my motivations towards glorifying Him, towards putting Him on display, towards representing, representing Christ to the world. Is that my aim and my goal? John then moves on to illustrate this point in a unique and important way as we consider the theology of the rest of the New Testament. We see this, secondly, as an observation. Observation number two, one, bridegroom. Observation number one, we see two baptisms. Observation number two, we see one bridegroom in verses 29 and 30. John says, the one, verse 29, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. This is clearly John stating that Jesus is the bridegroom, and this is the purpose of the Lord coming. The purpose is to make for himself a bride. The friend of the bridegroom, it says, if you read on, the friend of the bridegroom, verse 29, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. The friend of the bridegroom who bears witness to the ceremony rejoices in what he sees. And this is John's position. John is like the best man at the wedding. He is bearing witness up close and personally to the groom's love and affection for his bride. He is the one who has prepared the way for the groom to court uh, the bride and for the bride to be betrothed to him and await the wedding. This is John's goal. This is his purpose. This is what he has come to do. He announces the coming of the groom. This is very in line with ancient uh, Near East weddings or Israelite weddings, I should say, where there was a week-long celebration and Ladies, you would love this, I'm sure. You don't know when the groom's going to show up. Just a week long. All of a sudden, the uh, friend of the bridegroom says, here comes the groom. Not here comes the bride. (laughs) The bride's waiting. Here comes the groom. Here he comes. He's on his way. Clear out! Make way! The groom is on his way. He is ready to marry the bride. Paul picks up on this, of course, in Ephesians chapter five and verse twenty-two. We don't have time to turn there this morning and look over that. I would encourage you to write that down and look at it later. But, but Paul's language there uh, in that passage. Um, he talks about how Christ gave himself for the church to purify for himself a bride. And, 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 and Paul uses that illustration to say this is how a husband is to be toward his wife. He's to sacrifice himself. Yes, he is to lead his wife. He is to sacrificially lead her. Just as the church submits to Christ, So, so too the wife is to submit to the husband. But he is sacrificial and he gives his life for his bride. And you really have a hard time kind of understanding which one is Paul talking about. They kind of just overlap so much in there. But what is the illustration that he uses? The church is the bride. The church is the bride. John is up close and personal as a witness to this, the last one to bring the hand of the bride to the groom and say, this is him, this is the one. This is the one who's going to rescue you from every sin and cleanse you from every stain and give you a new name and purchase you through his own blood. And remind you, you are unworthy like Gomer to Hosea, but he has given the greatest price to purchase you back from the slave market of sin. And you will follow him and love him and submit to him because he is your loving Lord. John the baptizer's joy, he says, is now complete because he is witness to God's sovereign plan unfolding. This is the one. This is my purpose. Remember it says that this was before John was thrown into prison. John is shortly after this arrested, thrown into prison, and eventually is beheaded for calling a king to an account for his immorality. John the baptizer's joy is now complete. And he says this statement that I know we've heard so many times, but it is such a tremendous statement. Look at verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's exactly what happens in John the baptizer's life. His message is coming to an end. His life is coming to an end. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's time for Jesus' ministry His purpose now to be the focus. He has come to rescue his bride. I have made the call. The groom is coming. Now pay attention to him. This is true. John says, He must increase, but I must decrease. John's ministry is passing. This is the call on us as well. Though John's ministry is specific here concerning the transition of Jesus' ministry, the truthfulness of this statement still echoes and should echo in our minds today. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, must increase. But you and I, if we are his followers, if we are united to him, he must increase and we must decrease. That is our aim Dear ones, our joy is made complete when we say, this is not about me, this is not about a location on the corner of 74 and Sterling as a building. This is about the bride of Christ, but more so it's about the groom who is Christ. May we ever point to the groom. May we ever say, all eyes on Him. It is about His glory, even though He is working all things together for our good, it is ultimately for His glory. And what is our joy? What is our joy? What is the purpose of man? To bring glory to God and what? Enjoy Him forever as the Westminster says. This is the call that is upon us as well. We are to say, only may His glory, only may His renown be increased as I decrease. I should fade into the background as I proclaim the gospel. And may only Jesus be seen. I should fade into the background as I come alongside of brothers and sisters in Christ and disciple them. And, and yes, uh, um, imitate me as I imitate Christ, but it is about Christ. And when I am dead, and when I am gone, may no one say, boy, do you remember that ministry of Jason Allagood?" How he would stand in the pulpit and preach. He wasn't that eloquent or very good looking. No. I can't remember who that guy was that stood in the pulpit there or across the town or across the United States or around the world. I can't remember his name, but I can only remember Christ. May He increase in His renown, in His glory. And may I be forgotten. May you be forgotten. Oh, of course your family members will not forget you. Your loved ones here in this church will not forget you. But may they remember most of all, it was Christ that they proclaimed with their lips and with their life. And if that is not where your heart is today, dear one, I, I beg of you, evaluate that. If all you can think about is how can I increase, and you never think about how can I decrease and and, and make sure that Christ is increasing. Measure your heart. Ask God to expose that sin in your heart. It is sinful. John further expands on this in verses 31 through 36. Observation three two witnesses of one way. Two witnesses of one way. We see, first of all, two baptisms that are pointing to the same end. We see one bridegroom that John can't help but reduce his own importance and say, It is now about Christ. It has always been about Christ. My ministry is decreasing. His renown needs to increase. And now we see two witnesses. Of one way. John acknowledges from where Jesus has come. He emphasizes this several times in this short statement. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all, meaning Jesus. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, meaning John himself. He who comes from heaven is above all. Can he emphasize it more? This is the explanation of that decreasing of John's ministry and increasing of Jesus' ministry. He speaks of that twice, emphasizing that he who is from heaven is above all. He speaks of himself once, underemphasizing his own ministry. John himself is simply the earthly messenger of a heavenly visitor. Yes, a heavenly visitor who is the God-man. He has put on flesh. He has been incarnated. He is a man truly God and truly man, but this earthly message must now come to its appointed and purposeful end, which is to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And John echoes here what Jesus has said to Nicodemus concerning no one believing his testimony. Look at what it says there in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Back in chapter 3 and verse 12 or verse uh, 10, Jesus answered him to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. John the Baptizer is simply reiterating this. But notice what is said of those who do receive his testimony. Verse 34 For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Boy, there is so much theology here. We could spend weeks unpacking the theology here. But we see once again that God sent His Son. Remember our theological discussion last week. The Son is eternally sent from the Father. And this is expressed in space and time in the incarnation and the redemption of mankind. We talked about those eternal relations between father son and spirit and not only this but we also see this now giving of the spirit sent from the father and the son as jesus explains later in john 14 through 17 about that area and what do we see this is great trinitarian truth the father loves the son and gives everything into his hand my friend Dr. Chris Holmes has argued well that the intra-Trinitarian relations in the Father eternally begetting the Son by the Spirit shows the eternal love that is expressed in the Godhead. And what does he say? He he pours out this love in us by what? By the Spirit. Spirit. How do we know that there is eternal intra-Trinitarian love? That the Father loves the Son and gives everything into His hand. And that He's able to give the Spirit freely because we have been given the Spirit freely if we are in Christ. What is our confidence as we read the Word of God? We are assured by the presence of the Spirit in our life that we are His. His Spirit bearing uh, bearing witness with our spirit that we are truly the children of God and that As much as he has shown his love to us in that, he has shown the perfections of his love in the Trinity. John's point is that there's no one greater deserving of worship and honor and love than the eternal triune God who is seen in the person and work of Christ, who is sent by the Father and who together with the Father sends the Spirit to us. And this is a surety of God's truthfulness. Look at what it says. Uh, it says it says uh, early earlier uh, in verse thirty three. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this that God is true. God is true. By what the witness bearing witness to us the uh, the Spirit sorry bearing witness to us that this is true that this is so. The Spirit is the surety of God's truthfulness, God's love for His people, and His faithfulness. And the final statement here is one that restates what is said earlier in John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey Him shall not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. They are already under wrath. Now perhaps the language of obedience is confusing because we do not earn our redemption. It is a free gift. But it is a free gift gift to those who what? Believe. The gospel, dear ones, is a command. The gospel is a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from your sin and trust fully in Him and you will be given eternal life. If one does not obey this command, they are one who still remains under the wrath of God. Just as it said earlier in John 3, verse 18. Those who do not believe are condemned already. They're already under the judgment and wrath of God. To be removed from that stream of God's perfect and holy wrath, one must believe. One must turn to Christ. And this is the message that we proclaim. This command. In this he must increase, I must decrease. Do not look to me, look to him and live. If not, you remain under the wrath of God. Christian, where are you today? Are you of the mindset that he must increase, but I must decrease? Or is it all about you? Is it all about your agenda and your way or the highway for anyone who interferes? What about if it is the Lord who is interfering this morning with His Word and His Spirit? It says that God sent His Son to speak the words of God and He gives freely the Spirit. Is He through His Word and the conviction of the Spirit calling you to account today concerning your priorities? Humble yourself today and confess and run to Him and follow Him and obey His Word and see that you decrease and that He increases. Ask for help of your fellow church member. Tell them, I am always concerned about me increasing, and I realize now he must increase. Help me. That is what we need the body of Christ for. Christian, be a willing participant in this with others. If you're not walking with someone, you are missing out. You are needed in someone's life to point them to Christ and to say it is all about him, just as you need others to do this for you, just as I need others to do this for me. Anyone in this church ought to be able to walk up to you and ask, who are you spending time with in this local assembly? And you should be able to have an answer about one you are discipling or one who is discipling you. We must all have that in our lives. Because all of us struggle, right? With wanting ourselves to increase without thinking for a moment about the humility we need to have and the lordship that Christ has in our life and that he must increase. And we must decrease. Perhaps you're one who is struggling this morning with the idea of remaining under God's wrath. You're not certain that you are quite out from underneath it. In fact, you are instead quite certain you are under his wrath. This is a never-ending wrath that comes with an eternal dimension unless you turn to him today. You must look to Jesus, turning from your own sin and looking to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He will wash you. He will give you a new heart and make you his own. And you will be a part of the bride for whom he is returning, for whom he shed his blood. Turn from your sin and trust in him this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, maybe for some, they would sing with the old song, Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Those who need you and understand their need of you because of their sin, for the first time this morning, Lord, I pray that you would save them. Rescue them. Wash them. Adopt them, I pray. For those of us who do, Lord, help us to turn from our own increase to say that we must humbly decrease as we increase the fame of your name in our lives through what we say, how we respond, how we serve one another and proclaim the good news to others We pray for that, Lord, today. In Jesus' name, amen.